And welcome to the Milt Rosenberg Podcast. It's called that because the fellow who's talking at the moment is indeed Milt Rosenberg. And what could we possibly talk about the day after the election but the election? And raise uh, a few basic questions, which I will ask my guests to instantly address. Uh, the first is, we agree, it was a famous victory, and really in some ways a surprising victory in its extent. Uh, but the question is, why did it happen that way? How did they manage it? Or how did their opponents manage so poorly and squander whatever opportunities they might have had? And most important, what now? What should the Republicans be doing? What are they likely to do? What about the internal divisions? And will they, in fact, persist within the Republican Congressional Party, both in House and in Senate? So who are we putting those questions to? A very distinguished panel, two of whom have been here before, uh, and one joins us for the first time. The new entrant is Kevin Lampe of the firm of Firth Lampe, and they are Democratic uh, strategists. I love yeah, that absolutely. term as they use it in, uh, in uh, 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 television uh, news, uh, cable news channels. Also with us are uh, Chris Roebling, a mainstay of our old A-team, and he also a public relations person, which Kevin Lampy really is on the uh, political side. Chris is public relations on the corporate side and also, to be sure, on the political side. And uh, was for many years the partner in the firm operated by uh, Jane Thompson, uh, the wife of former Governor Thompson, and now is running his own firm. Uh, and our third guest is Scott Stantis, the distinguished editorial cartoonist uh, for the Chicago Tribune and about 375 other newspapers or around the least, world. At least. At least. Also the proprietor of at least two comic strips. Yes. All right. Now come straight to it. Uh, we're, we have to avoid or at least not linger over local issues because this is heard right, nationally and we trust internationally. But I know that your cartooning for the last day or two has focused on Springfield, Illinois. So explain just briefly why. Well, I'm the cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune and I want to keep my job. <laughs> It really comes down to that. It's that simple. What's the uh, Illinois angle? The Illinois angle is that nothing really changed here. We now have well, we got a Republican. We have governor. a Republican governor. This is true, but he's a very soft Republican. But as perceived by you know people at the right or far right, they would not call him a Republican at all. Why do you say that? Uh, a pro-choice. Uh, you know, has very close connections with uh, Democrats in the state. And frankly, if you want to get something done in Illinois, you better have those, I suppose. And somebody said on the radio the other day, I forget who, and did not adduce the evidence, that the 18 or is it $16 million rather rapidly earned by the current mayor of Chicago was essentially from the coffers of now Senator-elect Rauner. Well, that's not, you know, it's not I'm, cheap to be... Governor-elect Rauner. Yes. It's not cheap to be part of their uh, little wine group, you know. It's 150000 a year, for crying out loud. Um, yeah, I mean, they, that, that money was handed back and forth. It's a good old boy network, and I'm not, I'm not optimistic that things are going to move in the way that I think you and I would probably hope mm -hmm. that they would. Well, then the question is, will they move uh, nationally? And Chris Roebling, you have a whole uh, schedule of requirements that you want to now impose upon your fellow Republicans, those who carry or wear the senatorial mantle, and for that matter, who serve in the House where the Republican numbers have expanded uh, very considerably. What do you require them to do? 
Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I would say they have to communicate and they have to legislate. I mean, they're they are there <clears throat> at the at the federal level. The federal legislature is there to legislate, and I think they've got to. Uh, be about that business, and they have to be seen as being about that business, and they have to talk about why they are doing it. Uh, and I'll throw out one other thing. I don't want those guys to stand in any shoes but those of the average American voter. I, 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 I cannot emphasize enough the extent to which I think people are, first of all, I, I do think it is a categorical repudiation of Barack Obama's policies, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. I also want to say there was a repudiation of business as usual. And so if you're throwing out business as usual, then you are looking for folks to do things differently. And I will say, having lived and worked in D.C. and having lived and worked out here in Chicago, I think one of the key requirements for success now is to show that your orientation is not that of D.C., and all of its sort of interlocking assumptions, your orientation is back home. I have been haunting the uh, Internet today, of course, and uh, I've got loads of stories that I've printed out, and I carried some of them with me. And I'll read one to you right now. The headline, 100% of newly elected GOP senators campaigned on repealing Obamacare. i read you the first paragraph. Every newly elected GOP senator who won in last night's election, campaigned on repealing Obamacare. Then they list all the senators. Uh, Corey Gardner, Republican Colorado, David Perdue, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Joni Ernst, Iowa, uh, Tom Tillis, North Carolina, Tom Cotton, Arkansas, uh, Langford, uh, James Langford, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Danes, Republican Montana, uh, Rounds, uh, South Dakota, Shelley Moore, Capito, West Virginia, all ran on a platform of, repe of repealing Obamacare. Uh, Kevin Lampe, do you expect that they're going to start clamoring for that on the floor when they get the full Senate in January? I think they'd be wise to first talk about the things that they can agree upon. Um, tax cuts, uh, immigration reform. Find some things out of the out of the gate where they can find some common ground between the president and themselves. Unfortunately, I don't think that'll happen. Um, I think they will go after the the red meat, or at least the loudest members in the Senate will go after the red meat. I do not envy um, uh, Senator McConnell's uh, challenge here of having to herd this group of cats. Uh, they're very opinionated, very loud, who have very limited agendas. Uh, over the next uh, 12 months. There are a number of political divisions in American contemporary life. One is between Republicans and Democrats. Another of possibly even greater interest is between Republicans and Republicans. Uh, is the struggle between those who are called uh, traditionalist Republicans or whatever and those who are called radical Republicans, i.e. Tea Party Republicans, is that going to show up in bigger and stronger form uh, now that they've got the majority in the Senate? Well, it's already started to show up a little bit. Uh, even last night, you heard people saying that Cruz is now going to run, the senator from uh, Texas is going to run yeah. for majority leader. Of course, that's that's foolishness, but that was floated even at last night. You have the likes of newly minted Senator Ernst from Iowa and, uh, and others like that. 
It's going to be a battle. It always and, and the Democrats are facing the same thing. You have centrist Democrats who are going to be fighting with uh, progressives, and the progressives are going to say, "See, we told you you should have been more progressive, more radical, and we would have gotten more." Progressive. Well, will the first round of that battle between the two sectors of the Republican Party be over? Obamacare and what to do about it. Of course. And I, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned that all of the Republicans who won ran opposing or talking Fully. about repeal yeah. of, of Obamacare. I'm not sure that's a win. I'm sure Chris could probably address that. Um, but he probably has the numbers that can confirm or deny what my thoughts are, that there's elements of Obamacare people have grown to like already. Um, but there's a lot that people have grown not to like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that repealing Obamacare is now a phrase that has evolved in its meaning to state keeping the parts we like and junking the parts we don't and then bringing in a market-oriented, individually-based operation. Ah, then, Christopher Fitzhenry Roebling, are there any parts that you actually like in Obamacare? No, I, I would... I personally would say repeal the whole thing and do it do, do it the right way in in terms of actually holding hearings and building a bill and and having trying to gain some kind of consensus. I I, I think that the the great lost opportunity for President Obama, I've said this before, September of 2009 when all of the folks came, all of the legislators went back to Washington after those big revolts and demonstrations at the uh, uh, the, the the home district tour, when all of the congressmen and the senators were out and they were being yelled at about a government takeover of health care, and it took and and at that moment, Obama chose not to negotiate. He chose to stay hard left. I know. My Democrat friends say, no, no, it's not hard left. It's really Mitt Romney. It's not Mitt Romney. It is hard left. And it is a total government takeover. And so what you end up with is pain until the spring of 2010 after the election of Scott Brown. And I believe that is the beginning of the rupture between Obama and the electorate whose natural crescendo we saw last night. The inevitable question, and true, Kevin, is... Do you agree? Well, it's one of those people that has benefited from Obamacare. Uh, We went on a long time where we had no health insurance um, and actually went through a a couple of very serious health scares where, in reality, uh, we would have been left to die uh, without health insurance. Uh, We could not afford what the bills would have been. Uh, Luckily, things did not turn out the way they did. Uh, We now have access to health care that we never had before as a small business. One of the reasons we didn't expand our small business was because of access to health care at a reasonable price. Um, I think the Republicans uh, need to be very careful on where they tread. There's numerous things that the public really loves about it right now. Um, There are things that definitely need to be fixed. In fact, I, I very much said at the time that I thought the Obamacare was just a good start. It was, uh, we needed to be adjustments, there needed to be changes, but it was somewhere moving along. I, myself, am in favor of a single-payer system. Um, I've, I've seen it work successfully uh, in Sweden in particular, where I do a lot of business. My Swedish business counterparts love the uh, health system they have there, particularly the business owners, because they don't pay for it. 
Uh, they pay for it out of their taxes, yes, but they don't pay for it out of their corporate profits. Um, I think um, this is going to be an emotional issue, and I think the president is going to stand firm on repealing Obamacare. And sometimes in politics, you got to pick the hills that you want to die on. And this hill may be too big of a hill uh, for my friends across the aisle. Let's pick some hills where we actually could um, pound the size of those hills into planes and find some sense of agreement. You are a political strategist. You are indeed a man of politics, not only in this country, but as you've indicated, and I've looked at the material in Sweden and many other countries around the world as well. I am a mere psychologist and, to be sure, a psychologist monkey. Uh, but let me pursue a psychological uh, issue with uh, you, Kevin, and with our two other guests as well. Quite simply, how much of the history of our time and of the last six years and of, uh, and of this, uh, this week and the uh, election results, how much of it involves crucially the personality uh, and thus the behavior and habits of the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely the narrative that's been strong here. And I think that what you saw happen last night was people fed up with and exasperated by the idea that even people, I think, who voted for him the first time and the second time, the hope, the talents that he had, the oratory skills that were you know, reminiscent of Reagan, that they, he would be able to step forward and use the bully pulpit and be successful. And his pants were more beautifully creased than Reagan's were. Very beautifully creased. And he's yeah. an angular, handsome man. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm comfortable enough to so say that. So what went wrong? I don't think he has the or chops to, I don't think he has the chops to lead. I don't believe he's a leader. And I mean, and that's not a Democrat or a Republican issue. That's uh, a practical issue. If you put this person in charge of your business, would he or she, in this case a he with Barack Obama, mm. lead your business? And I think he has failed in that. Chris Roebling, has he and why? And what does it have to do with his nature is what I'm really after. Well, I, I have a hard time knowing his nature, but I will say that uh, we're, we're taping, we're, we're recording this the, the night after Election Day. So we saw Obama's press conference this afternoon. I did, yes. And, and in the press conference, I, I saw petulance. And, and I think I saw, I, honestly, I think I saw immaturity. Was that the first time you saw petulance and immaturity from him? No, but you would think after this kind of categorical and univocal repudiation of the policies he said were on the ballot. That was not a Tea Party press release. Barack Obama himself said, my policies are on the Okay, fine. I, and and it, it's not just at the Senate. It was at the House and then below that, it was at the governorships. And below that, we have these counties in Illinois, way down south, totally Democratic. They have been for generations. In Madison County, Illinois, a Republican was elected associate judge of the circuit court yesterday. It's, it's unheard of. Franklin County, Illinois, a stronghold of the United Mine Workers. Bruce Rauner got 62% in Franklin County. This is on Bruce Rauner won St. Clair County by one point. This is uh, and, and for Barack Obama to dwell on and to return to and to repeat his mention of, quote, the tooth. I heard the two thirds who didn't vote. 
and I understand you, as if to almost delegitimize the people who did vote. Kevin, is that what he was trying to do? No, I he... understand you. He said that. You know what that reminds me of? A scene from another time uh, with another great leader, Charles de Gaulle, uh, standing on the balcony uh, in Algiers when the revolt was on and the uh, the native French Algerians were uh, against independence for Algeria and were a civil war, in fact, was being waged. And uh, he came down and standing on the balcony as they shouted and cheered and uh, a great historical moment had arrived. No one knew what might come of it as Le Grand Charles suddenly is there. He says, Je vous ai compris. I have understood you. But they did not understand him. Because, in fact, his intention was to go back and rather quickly uh, get through the House of Deputies and uh, so on. Essentially, a bill which uh, gave Algeria its independence. Uh, he t told the two-thirds, I have understood you, you're saying. What has he understood about them? I, I, well, we have to wait for his next press conference, but I, here's what he didn't understand. He and his policies were repudiated definitively yesterday, and he needs to start over. And what I got instead was, I'm just moving along. We're just going to keep going in the direction and at the rate that we've been going, and that's where we and are. And he will still have his phone and his... Uh... And his fountain well, pen? Yeah, the constitutional implications of what he said about, I'm going to do what I want on immigration, but if the Congress does something else, it's going to wipe. I mean, I, I, I think real con law professors' heads were exploding. Well, I want to come back to immigration. It's a crucial and fascinating area. But before we do, of course, uh, let's turn to Kevin. I just simply repeat the question. What do you think the personality, as near as we can discern it, and the uh, personality-based behavior from uh, the president had to do with his defeat, uh, with the Democrats' defeat yesterday? I think one of the challenges that this, this administration has had is that the president needs to be more effective in talking about the things he has done well. Um, they have not presented their side of their case uh, up to and including particularly the, the Obamacare debate and did not go out there and sell it and explain it um, and vet it fully that they, they, they did not explain it as well as they could have. And they, he needed to go out there and talk about more what he was doing. He also needed to spend more time with the members of Congress. Um, he, it was a missed opportunity, um, particularly in the first two years, and then more and more, particularly the second two years, where he needed to spend more time. He needed to take advantage and really um, sit down and take advantage of the, the talent he had in, in uh, as vice president, who understands more about the institution than most people in this country alive today do, and be able to understand what is going on and be able to explain and to help him to understand how he can work his agenda to it so that he can get things passed. He, he has this, this the, you know, one of the things that's frustrating about the president is he does have this um, steadfastness of opinion where he becomes immovable. And I think he needed to be able to go out there and to be able to talk to people who uh, he needed to talk to. And he just, he just missed that opportunity. 
I uh, watched that same press conference this afternoon, and uh, I had a sort of grudging admiration for what I thought was a certain amount of resilience and a certain amount of toughness that he was uh, showing, even though if I were he in that situation, I would be uh, fighting back my tears. Well, our good friend Charles Lipson wrote a great piece last night saying that both the Republicans and the president have to make quick, immediate decisions, and that meant today, about how they were going to face this challenge. Uh, The president had two choices to make. One, he could have been combative. The other one was he could have been complacent and said, we're going to work together and we're going to do this. I think he took the... um, the former instead of the latter. And the Republicans are faced with the same thing, of course. Um, they can choose to say, well, now we're going to push our agenda down everybody's throat and, you know, probably get vetoed and we're overwrite. That was one way to go. But I thought what Mitch McConnell said today, did you see his press conference? I did not. It was fascinating. He said exactly what you said, which was, and, and actually Kevin um, I watched. I, I did actually. Did you I did see not it? see the president. I, I, I did see um, the, the new majority leaders. And I, he said, Pretty much what you just said, which is we're going to go forward and, and work on the stuff that we can agree with. I think where I disagree with Kevin a little bit, what he said earlier is I believe out of the box we're going to see agreement on things they can agree on, like the corporate tax um, mm-hmm. rate being lowered because we're the highest in the industrial world. I think there will be a, a, an agreement on immigration reform, but then it kind of then it comes to a screeching halt, and we're faced with Obamacare and some other. Well, there, I think that President matters. Obama has been after. Uh, trade negotiation authority, and I think the Republicans support him on that. Right. I think that. Uh, I think we'll see TTIP. Will um, we'll move forward? Which is TTIP. TTIP. You're you're, you're the Republican uh, businessman. I'm just the uh, Democratic hack. So. Uh, no, but it's want... the, the trans. It's a it's a, a trade agreement dealing with the transatlantic. Oh, and, the transatlantic. Tra- yeah, yeah, that is that is yet another uh, trade activity, and I, I can tell you. I think that our 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 allies are delighted. <laughs> our, our European allies are delighted with it. Now they're not going to say that publicly, but they have been biting their nails over whether or not the uh, the transatlantic trade partnership that and which we're just talking about is is actually going to be enacted. Okay, and and under when when Harry Reid was in was running the Senate. Uh, there was no chance it would get enacted because of Harry Reid's ties to various labor organizations. What does it? Well, labor actually, labor actually is is much more comfortable with TTIP than they were with NAFTA, and labor has more labor. Labor does have an understanding, and there is lots of opportunity. A lot of uh, what will happen is numerous standards that are European standards now for the labor practices would also then. Well, be let's adopted. Let, let's look at it briefly. What in fact does TTIP do by way of innovation? Well, I. I, I, I I think it's, it is an opportunity for us to uh, solidify our trade relationship with, um, with, with Europe. It, it reduces or it regulates tariffs and trade barriers to create a more open and, I would say, unified marketplace across the Atlantic Ocean so that Canada, the United States, and I believe Mexico are, are able to deal directly with Europe without the current regime of regulation tariffs and obstacles. So it, it is something that they have been significantly interested in. Germany has been pushing this very, very hard, and they've got a variety of uh, diplomatic and public affairs outreach activities going on. The UK has been pushing this very hard. I think France support. So, so this is really a 
pan-European issue. And it was stalled. Now, so I'm only I'm just coming in on the back of Scott's point, which I think is also we're all on the same page that there's got to be some movement. There's got to be some agreement. There's got to be an identification of a half a dozen issues where I think it is in both sides interests, the the Republicans and President Obama to say, oh, look, in the in the first hundred days of the Republican Congress, we got these six things done. And then I think there's going to be a divergence when we get to something a little more substantive, whether that is Obamacare, and I, I, I want to amend my remarks if I said this, I, I agree with Kevin that, that the open process of revi- revising and improving Obamacare should take place before any votes are taken to, quote, repeal. You all remember a former speaker, Republican Speaker of the House, who uh, in campaigning uh, promised America a... Uh, a list, was it, of 10 or 12 uh, innovations that would be pursued immediately upon uh, the next Congress being sworn in. Uh, are the current, for the Republican majority in the House, and for that matter in the Senate, are they likely to try to do the same thing, systematically run down uh, at least six or seven major innovations? I don't think I would major shoot. Initiatives. They, they don't seem to. They certainly didn't run on them. And one of the knocks against the Republicans who re, who ran and won this time is that they ran strict and won because they were not Barack Obama or the party of Barack uh-huh. Obama. Uh, there wasn't a contract with America in, in this instance, and I don't know that there's an, a, a, a that the Republicans can agree on a an agenda that would come to more than three or four points. Well, what is their point? Do they have any consensual convergence with regard to what I take to be one of the basic issues, namely immigration, immigration reform? I was rather stunned during the last month or so that various people on the right, including some talk show hosts and uh, some of the right-wing locations on the Internet, were telling us that the president was after 32 million green cards uh, to be used for illegal immigrants. That could not have been the case. I, I saw that same story, and I, it couldn't have been the case. I'm not sure where that came from or what the source of but that story But it does suggest was. that there's going to be an awful lot of legalization of a lot of people if the president had his way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I think that the president is—I think they've already written it. I think that he is now going to go through a, uh, a rundown of events prior to signing it. I think he sees that as part of his legacy. Well, what's the it, Chris? What what are they? What well, have they I already? I think he's written? going to take. I think he will change the status. I think he will take administrative action to change the status of a large number of undocumented residents of the United States, and they are going to go from. And I I don't know all of the technical designations of these status conditions, but. He is going to make people essentially, I mean, it seems to me, he's going to give them almost permanent resident status. So that, so people who would otherwise, otherwise be waiting for a green card to be a permanent resident, legal permanent resident, they're going to, that's going to be sort of bestowed upon them with his pen and his phone. Can he do this by executive action, or does he need compliance from uh, both houses? I think that's going to be the the great <laughs> battle that'll be fought. Well, I, I think he's comfortable. Is comf- he is he is a learned person. Uh, he studies his options well, maybe even overstudies them. And if he's will, if this is a battle he's willing to take on. 
um, you know, I will follow him into that battle. When he uh, was when hanging he, around the University of Chicago, where I spied him once or twice, um, he, uh, as a mere, quote, professor of uh, constitutional law, he supposedly knew a fair amount about the Constitution. But I wonder, does the Constitution, properly interpreted, even by the current Supreme Court, uh, does it allow him to do this by executive fiat? That is a massive question. And I have to imagine that when he does things like this, and he also talks about other executive orders, it's going to go to court. And you could potentially see, and it depends on your viewpoint, I think this might be a good thing, the diminishment of executive power as in the American government as it's constructed right and understood today. And this is after 50 years of it being built upon and built upon and built upon. You know, and, and, and I mean, the, the, this is service to a constituency. And and obviously, I think every every sober person alive sees this as a step towards getting voting rights to these individuals on the theory that they will forevermore and they and their progeny will forevermore support the Democratic Party. And I think it, it I think the legacy ends up being Obamacare immigration and the nuclear deal with Iran. And as for the statutory or the constitutional basis, I do know that there is a fair amount of discretion vested by Congress in the executive branch on individual cases, on individual cases. I don't know if that translates into this kind of plenary categorical power over literally millions of cases. Are we talking about 35 million? Are we talking about a number that large? No, no not that large. So. 32 no, no. million was what they spoke about. Oh, well. well I, no, no. <laughs> I think we're talking about 14 million or something like 15 million. We, you know, that's yet another element of this. It's very hard to sort of pin down exactly who we're talking about by the nature of the circumstances that they in inhabit. Mm-hmm. But, but what, what, what always frustrates me about this issue is why we don't spend more time talking about the businesses that hire undocumented workers and why we are not spending more time enforcing that and making life difficult for the businesses that hire undocumented workers. If that was the case, our food would cost more, our hotel rooms would cost more, uh, various other parts of our economy would cost more, but we wouldn't be we wouldn't be having this discussion today. And I think it's it's where the Republicans have been a little disingenuous in their own base by not going after the reason why there are so many undocumented they're undocumented workers because a business is hiring them and isn't it them. in fact part of the background picture, and that's part of the historical reality that the last Republican president wasn't too worried about undocumented workers being in the workforce. He rather thought, you remember uh, George W.'s line that they are willing to do the work that Americans don't want to do. Well, of course, like drawing immigration uh, legislation, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, the Republicans, and don't, and you know, on terms of the Republican track record, it was Ronald Reagan, who I think last had how many, yeah. um, um, how many did he pardon? Um, um, Six or seven million? Yeah. So, so this has happened before. Um, and it just seems to me there's a practical solution to this to this problem, and nobody's willing to address it. And for the reasons I think Kevin touches on one that's very practical. People, landscapers, construction, they like cheap labor, um, hotelery, and, and, and that comes into the discussion about cost of labor, which, of course, I think is the overriding issue that no one is talking about in this country right now. 
Well, it, it, but it, this this is a vexing. I mean, this is this is only a prelude to the national debate that will ensue executive action. But I, I want to make I, I I may be agreeing here with Kevin in this element, but slightly stated differently. Everyone in this country ought to understand that by not defending our border, by not regulating who got in. We were indirectly welcoming these folks in. And, and I, I think that to stand up and to, to sort of treat them as common criminals and, and, to, and to not understand that th- they both came here out of a human need and we welcomed them because of an economic need. I mean, not to understand some of these basic human elements. Now, that's, this is not true of the you know, Zeta gang member who is waiting, you know, who is hiding in a, under a bush in Colorado because he doesn't want to be picked up by the federales in Nogales. Is that, he doesn't qualify for this sort of benign view. But I, 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 this, this, real, this issue, I think, really calls into question our identity, our, our contemporary identity as, as, a, as a nation. I think if, if we Republicans and Democrats admit it, that they are both participants in the need for immigration and undocumented workers, and the de- the Democrats we're willing we're willing to admit and understand that these workers are undocumented, but I don't hear from the Republicans saying, you know what, we take some responsibility because our constituency that we care a lot about, just like you referred to a constituency, Chris, that we care about in Latino voters and other other immigrant voters, no matter what their nationality may be. But I'm not hearing from Republicans saying, you know what, we bear some responsibility for this. And that would be a huge step forward in creating a space and creating an atmosphere for dialogue. But right now, from the Republicans, we don't hear that. And you need, you know, we, those are some of the rhetorical things that we need. I think you have heard that because if, if Ronald Reagan gave us, and he did, Simpson Mazzoli, right, wrong, good, bad, but, but Ronald Reagan was that, that's how that happened. George W. Bush, whatever else you or any may, may say of him, uh, 2006, he yeah. came out with his yeah. immigration. And, he, and and I think that it was a reasonable, I, uh, uh, well thought through, and he was excoriated by grassroots Republicans. That was really one of the big starts of and, the and Tea see, Party. But that is the test of leadership. Because as a leader, when you're elected to office, yes, you're there to do the people's bidding, but you're also there to do your own bidding. You're not elected... I've, I'm a firm believer in electoral office, no matter what it may be, whether it's chapter president of your college fraternity or your president of the United States. You're elected to use your judgment, not just reflect the views of the people that elected you. Because sometimes what, what you may think and you may understand as a person that sits in that job, you, it becomes different than what you knew as a candidate. And so it, is, it requires sometimes for leadership to be able to say, you know what? main constituency, you know what, grassroots people, you don't understand this. And I'm using bold, blunt terms here. You don't understand it. I understand this. We may need to look at this differently, and we may need to change this discussion. And if, 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 if there were Republican leaders who got up and started to say, we need to look at immigration from both sides of the issue on a consistent basis, who in the last year on the Republican leadership I'll tell you, I'll tell who you. has said it? Paul uh, Ryan. 
Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. I thought you were there at the City Club. I, I maybe you weren't there that <laughs> no. day. Paul Ryan and Luis. <laughs> I Gutierrez. just pay taxes in his district. Paul Ryan and Luis Gutierrez, uh, two Congress people, one from New York, uh, one from Chicago, and one from Southern Southeast Wisconsin, came to the City Club of Chicago last July or something, and they had a terrific two-person presentation. But, they, but they're not. They're not being amplified. You know, it, this is not what you, this is not the part of the immigrant immig, the immigration discussion that's happening on well, white wing well, media, I, I, and that you're not talking you're not talking to the constituents that you need to talk to. You're talking to the choir when you're at City Club. Well, no, I, well, just well, so that I'm not sure that's to, right. To complete that record, <laughs> um, Paul Ryan and Luis Gutierrez, and a couple and another sort of odd couple on the Senate side, had actually been going around and went to something like 25 cities. Around the country, right? Saying this, and there's, I mean, there's blowback, obviously from the right. Mark Rubio is one who tried to very reasonably, sensibly right. come forward with an immigration. Let's let's talk about immigration, and he was shot down from both sides, by the way. So it's one of those issues that get people very excited. It's very emotional. It gets votes. On well, he was side. rather like a high school debater. One part of Rubio's plan <laughs> was we don't get, allow them into citizenship until they learn English. We test them. For their competency in the English language. That's well, not I, serious. I, no, of course not. I can tell you my Lithuanian and French family coming through Ellis Island did not would not have passed that test. And, well, I'd be living in France, which actually sounds pretty nice, Milt. Um, it, it's one of those issues. And let's, go, let's, let's, let's backtrack a little bit and go back to your original point. The pre, if the president tomorrow says, I'm going to essentially change these people's status, it is going to be a poop storm of unimaginable proportions, and it is going to blot out anything else that we talk about. And there's really important stuff to talk about in this country right now. Well, I'm going on to another thing important to talk about, though we ventilated this one very nicely, and we've not resolved it clearly. (laughs) And it's going to be a major issue for the (laughs) remaining two years of this presidency and probably beyond. But also a very simple and in some ways uh, a more discreet uh, issue is the question of the Keystone XL oil pipeline, uh, which lots of people have been advocating for some time. It's there, just about ready to go. The president says no, absolutely no. And also, as part of his general negative on energy, he also says no more coal. And uh, that made a big hit down in Kentucky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, coal is uh, the thing about America and coal is we have a lot of it. Yeah. And we burn a lot of electricity in this country. So we need it. It's essential. Can we put money towards development of burning as cleanly as we can? Yes, we can. It's, is that really, really hard? Absolutely. Am I having are a conversation with myself? Apparently I am. Are the Republicans now going to preside over the opening of the XL pipeline? Should they? Can they do that? Now, who's, whose authority is it's, that, Kevin? It is... Um, it, it is um you know, if they send a bill, the president's probably going to veto it. I think the president's going to stand firm. Can you override the, the veto? Uh, they don't have the votes. No. I, 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 even if well, they got Democrats to join them, I don't think they'll have the votes. That's what I was wondering, of course. There will be Democrats on their side as well. I'm not so sure. I mean, it depends. You know, I, I can tell you, let's just say that we've got, if we have 53 today, we're going to end up with 55. The Republicans, if if the Republicans have 53 today, they they will get, well, I guess they've got Alaska, so that gets you to 54. Mm-hmm. And then Louisiana is going to come Republican because uh, Senator Landrieu down there is is stuck, mired in the mid to low 40s. And when you get the Republican and the uh, independent or libertarian guy together, whether you get those votes together, she's going to be wiped out. So 
So that then gets you into the question about overriding vetoes, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the rep- here is one thing. This could, be, this could be an example. First of all, if we don't do it, and I don't think the president has ever said definitively, I'm against it. He, he, he was very— he, He's not been as strong as some of the environmental left would right, like him to be. Right, and, and, and he left it open for the likes of Senator Landrieu and others. But the, the point comes back to um, part of what the Republicans have to do in the next two years is to decide what bill they're going to be putting on the desk in front of Obama. So here's a bill that says yes to the Keystone Pipeline. At that point, apart from the actual public impact, which in the case of the XL Pipeline is pretty significant, but apart from that, politically, they then have Obama over a barrel because he's either going to sign it and that's a win for them, or he's going to veto it and they've got their issue. They can say, look, we we passed the bill. He vetoed it. It's his fault. Okay. So right now, that that seems to be a natural occurrence of that. But they have to start thinking about those issues that they're going to use to delineate the difference between generally understood the Republicans and the Democrats. Same thing goes for President Obama. It's what he referred to today in his press conference. He said, I'm going to take executive actions that I'm sure they're not going to like. And he has to be, I, in my two cents, he needs to be judicious about, about those because he will be setting up not just his own legacy, but also the basis for his Democratic successor in, or his, the, the candidate to succeed him. And, and so that's very important for his side. As to his Democratic successor, <clears throat> it's uh, just a, a sidebar issue in a way, but it's also been in the news. We're told uh, by uh, close observers that uh, Mrs. Clinton did herself no good, indeed <laughs> injured her, uh, her very opportunity for the nomination down in her almost home state of Arkansas. Not just Arkansas, but across the country. Every candidate she campaigned for lost. Lost. Every single one. I think that is, well, hilarious. And, and What's that all about? I think it speaks to, I mean, she does not have the gravitas that her husband has for a myriad of reasons, not least of which is I don't think she's a good candidate, She's and she doesn't have the charisma or the charm that he does. And... So it didn't bring people to those candidates that she campaigned for. See, I think I think there was you cannot blame the loss of those candidates on on Secretary Clinton or on who campaigned for them. I think their losses hang on their own heads. Um, you know, the Democrats did not do as good a job as selecting candidates this cycle as we've done in the past, nor were we given the gifts that the Republicans did in the last cycle. With 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 pushing and and putting out more far far right wing, you you have all of a sudden um, a lot of candidates moving very quickly to the center, as most Republican candidates did this cycle, to to get elected. And but also we were in states that were clearly red states. This was the worst possible group of states for the Democrats to come out victorious. The I think I actually think. Secretary Clinton's chances for the presidency were increased because the more she gets battle-hardened as a candidate, the better she's going to be. She still needs some development as a candidate in order to take on the next presidential race. I 
I think as a loyal Democrat, you have done the absolute best, Kevin, that you possibly can. But I, I want to say the Democratic Party, quite honestly, I, I, I think I did that, it intellectually, too. I don't think it's just me being a Democrat. OK. I think it is. You know, I mean, you know, granted, I don't have a degree from, you know, in East, Eastern. Oh, cut that. And I went to Western Illinois. I know that I'm not intellectually respected in this town. But uh, is, no. <laughs> I. <laughs> yes. No, I want to say. <laughs> The Democrats knew that they didn't, they couldn't run on their record. And so they created four issues or a four issue matrix, racism, sexism, homophobia, and uh, as far as I can tell, the minimum wage. And, and, and I'm, I'm only partially kidding when I say that. No, I, I, I think that they right. were, the, the, the Democrats were reduced as, for lack of a better term, Rome is burning. Now, in fact, Rome was not burning. The economy has actually been getting a little bit better. It's just been getting better at such a slow rate. It's been getting better at such an, at, at such an anemic pace that you, if you ask people, the latest Fox News poll with uh, Roper or somebody, the right track, wrong direction. Wrong direction was something like 66%. And, and so, so, in, so instead of dealing with those issues— they chose to go the route of the war on women, and they chose to go the route of, you know, exclusion as opposed to diversity. And they chose to go the route of um, uh, sexism or I'm sorry, and, and racism. I mean, that was the Ferguson thing. So I think that Hillary was playing the hand that was dealt to all Democrats, all Democrats lost. I don't think... You know, just like we've come back from terrible defeats, the Democrats can come back from this terrible defeat. But I don't think this helps her one single bit in her bid to become president. Do you think a challenge will come from uh, the um, newest senator from Massachusetts? I can speak to that. Please. Actually, you know, in, in, in actually from knowing what's going on, um, if um, if Hillary does not run— from you know, I, I mean, I have a relationship. Yeah. Um, uh, if Hillary does not run, Elizabeth Warren is ready to to step in. Is she ready to step in even if Hillary runs? Because I know a lot no. of friends on the on the no. left really want her to. No, I don't think I don't think she, I think she will hold off. She's learned a lot in the past couple of years and, and grown a much better understanding of what co- of what commends her her professorship at Harvard Law or her uh, uh, or her. Or Indian origins. <laughs> it's her Native American background. <laughs> yes, yeah. that, that always brings in the votes. I think it's the, her progressive notions, and I think that she is, I perceived by many of my friends on the left, as having true progressive bona fides, where Hillary is viewed as Hillary's a traitor. Hillary's a moderate. She's a centrist. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and, and so is Barack Obama. I mean, mm. these people are centrists. They're moderates. They're not as far left as certainly I am. Uh, well, what are today. true progressive bona fides? Uh, your term, define it, uh, specify it. What does it really uh, mean? T- uh, tax the rich, uh, you know, uh, regulate the heck out of businesses, things of that nature. I mean, they, uh, particularly economic issues, uh, social issues, which I think social issues, frankly, are non-starters because they're pretty much decided now. I think gay marriage because because the left fought so hard and made sure that they were decided. Okay, well, whoever gets the credit or or blame for that that those are they're they're non-starters now so now it becomes now it becomes an economic battle it becomes uh 
I touched on this earlier. Price of labor continues to be uh, uh, the debate that people aren't having in this country, and we have, and we need to have it. Uh, you know, the, the gulf between rich and poor, which is growing, which uh, the diminishment of the middle class, stuff like that, and the solutions to that. You know, Chris and I would see free market solutions to those. I, I don't want to speak for him, but I imagine Kevin would see a statist response to that, and that would be the progressive side. I, I think that the 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 gulf. No, the threshold between liberalism and leftism, which I think, Milt, is what you were asking us. Is that right? I am indeed. Okay. So, so liberalism, you, you, I think liberalism is essentially what we would refer to as a social democratic agenda relative to income support and transfer payments. So, so, so that you know, health insurance or retirement insurance, the social security scheme, though, you know, the, the social safety net more or less to me is liberalism and, and, and leftism, right. Is another step beyond that. And leftism is a, is a point at which folks are prepared <laughs> to use government, not just to provide for the least in society or for the least capable in society for whatever reason. Um, but leftism is a use of government to impose uh, uh, essentially value preferences of governing elites. Was Barack like, Obama- like the Civil Rights Act then? I mean, you know, those were the Civil Rights Act in the 60s. Those were attacks against the elite and, and Democrats and the left fought for that. No, no, and the Democrats. Wait, wait. No, 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 hold no, 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 no. The Dixocrats, the Dixocrats. But Lyndon Johnson made it happen. Republicans fought for those, and Republicans enabled those, and that is the absolute truth. And 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 I I think the Republican civil no, no, rights. No, no, we're talking about liberals here. We're talking about. We're not talking about Democrats. We're talking about liberals. I, I, I and and I I don't. I think that that is respect for. That is an expansion of civil rights. That is not. Um, Dodd Frank telling commercial banks what you may and may not do. Now hold on, I need I seek basic clarification: liberalism and leftism. Uh, in which category uh, did and does Barack Obama belong? Oh, I think he's a leftist. You think he's I, truly I, I, a leftist? He might be. A, he might be a near leftist and not a far leftist. But I think that he is definitely a man of the left. He told us to vote on his program. They are vote. This election is about what I've done. It's about my program. Right. What was leftist, and what is leftist in his program? Right. And by yeah. the way, is anything left of his leftism? <laughs> I think, unfortunately, we heard this afternoon. There's much left of his leftism, and I think the the the, the principal leftism uh, of of Barack Obama was expressed in this absolute refusal with Obamacare to consider. The empowerment of individuals. There's this terrible fear that that leftists have of dispensing vouchers to people and saying, you can now go make your own choices. The way that, say, Milton Friedman wrote about the negative income tax. Which but now- under under the under the system of healthcare that existed in the Bush era, 
I did not have that choice. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not, and, and Kevin, and you know I, that I'm the I've, real example. I understand I'm that. I'm the real example, and I, I, you know, you constantly want to take away rights from me. That's not true. And yes, you do, Chris. That, that, and you would rather see me, true. you'd rather see me die than than receive this health care. That's not true. And because, particularly, you and I have had this conversation in yes. front of other people, and I yes. do not take and that. So, I don't, I don't exalt the latter day George Bush health arrangement of the United States as a pref- as as a preference over Obamacare that's just false but if Obamacare gets repealed i lose my health care not necessarily because yes. but no. no you know you're really worrying me about your health i don't yes. know what yeah, your you reference okay? was, yeah, you, yes. you, was no i look at look at i'm fat and i have hypertension of course i'm going to die soon my every one of my grandparents died in their in their 50s of cancer well, so we i'm well that, on my way we there we don't want that to happen but this we is don't. this is the real life that happens though I, uh, this is where the re, where the rubber meets the road and this is what we need because we use these words to attack each other no no I, I, a guy like me it, in response to the situation you describe, taking personalities out of it, I prefer for you to decide what to do about your health care with the support of federal government dollars. And that's not what you have under Obamacare. I'm so worried about Kevin. Uh, I can't stand the tension. We've no. had So I'm going to shift to something quite different, something we, something we haven't Thank yet you. talked about. <laughs> Thank you. About ISIS, yes. You, you know, Kevin, uh, I am a few years older than you. And what, what comes to mind is uh, the great saying, a great Caesar's bust is on the shelf, and I don't feel so good myself. <laughs> We've not yet gone abroad at all. Mm-hmm. And oh, surely there's a lot on the foreign policy agenda, which uh, is kind of messy these days. One immediate item is that a lot, many of our militaries say, we've got to go back in there, in there being Iraq. Iraq. You know, one of the things I suggested in an editorial board meeting with the Chicago Tribune is that we should go back in with, with some numbers and shove them all into Syria and let Assad deal with this, in which at least it it, 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 it regains the Mosul and other refineries. Are that, the Republicans you know, in the Senate going to care and going to act on are they going to act on anything no, like that's that? that's a tough to think about. I mean, if you're Senator Rosenberg, would you vote in your district or, or congressman? Would, would the people in your and the mothers in your district want you to say, okay, we're going back in. We're going to put not just capital and tre- we're not going to put treasure, but we're going to put life in your kid's life to do this. Now, that's a harder sell. And we've had 10 years experiencing war that seems to be bottomless. Um I'm not sure this country has the resolve, and it's curious because this seems to be the war we should have been fighting, and we're—it's a very, very—I'm I'm wrapping myself in, circ- in, in knots here, and I apologize for that. It's a difficult sale, but I think you have to do it. What do we do about Russia? What do we do about China? Both of them are uh, acting ambitiously, if not aggressively, Well, China's, in ways that threaten or, or, or challenge our interests. Look what China's doing in, in the South China Sea with property of the Philippines, yes. islands that are claimed by Japan. This is a powder cake, and we are doing nothing. This is this administration's, and this is this is the glaring weakness of this administration. You have Putin invading you know, parts of uh, This is the Cairo speech. We're guilty of a great deal, and we're going to be nice to the rest of the world. Precisely, and he, yeah, maybe I, he'll go and apologize to the Ukrainians at some point, but right now... Our allies don't trust us. They don't believe us. They don't believe we. Uh, this administration has the courage or the stamina or the or, or the backbone to do what it says it's going to do and what needs to be done. And the people, frankly, so our adversaries Repub- don't respect so us. So is the Republican difference going to make a difference? I don't in know if it can. Policy? Legislatively, I don't know if it can. I think this, these are areas that we actually need to start talking to each other, not at each other. Um, I advise a political party in Ukraine. Um, I advise political parties in Africa. 
Um, the Chinese are the biggest problem in Africa right now. Uh, America needs to be focused on what's going on there uh, because China is creating instability. Uh, economic instability, and they're taking advantage of the natural resources and destroying the lands and destroying the people as well. Uh, in the Ukraine, Putin is, is out of control. Um, and we need to, we need to actually, we need to kill our rhetoric around these hot spots and actually sit down and have an intellectual discussion about what can be done. I actually can be fairly hawkish on, on ISIS. Um, I know from work that I do in, in Albania, Kosovo, and Macedonia that ISIS is recruiting in those regions. Um, I know people that have been recruited who are going over and fighting in Syria. Um, and th th these are regions, Albania, Macedonia, and, and Albania, where we can desperately be very influential. Uh, I mean, as, as a, when I go and work with political parties in that region, I am, I'm introduced from the stage and the people chant USA, USA, as I'm being brought to the stage. Uh, these are, you know, predominantly Muslim countries. And these, you know, these are allies that we need to be taken care of and that we need to be, we need to be economically participating in Eastern Europe. And we need to be economically participating in Africa. And if we were to step up those things and get American businesses to understand the opportunities that exist for markets in those places, you want to talk free markets, those are the two of the biggest markets in the world right now. So it's not a military uh, area of concern. It's essentially uh, corporate. Well, I think, I think well, I, I, I mean, I, you know, you may be surprised to hear this. I'm not, I'm, I'm someone who is comfortable with drone attacks. Um, I just think of it as another another advancement in technology in war. Um, I mean, people probably were mad when we went from horses to cars or to tanks, you know, or went from swords to guns. These are all things, but these are what it takes, and I can be supportive of, of the president. Now, I wish there wasn't, the, you know, I, I think we need to regulate and understand what these drone attacks are doing, but in principle, I'm supportive. But don't you think, I don't believe this is an unfair accusation that Putin... And his adventurism now, now he's kind of looking at the Baltic states and as a Lithuanian, I, Lithuanian American, I makes me, you know, I, it catches my attention. But what he did in Ukraine, what he did in Georgia, wasn't he emboldened by an administration he knew he could get away with this? I stuff. completely I, I, disagree with you that, that Putin would have been empowered no matter who the American president was. He did was. not do it under he George is, W. Bush. He didn't have, he, he did. had the opportunity. He with he Georgia did. later he, in the, right. when, he did it, he did it in Georgia. Right. And he had, he had, right. he had a right. golden opportunity. And when I was trying to get the United States more involved in what was going on in Ukraine, uh, we saw Putin coming. Putin didn't care who the president was. Well, he was going to come in no matter what. Okay. I, I, well, I, well, I was going to – I think that it is hard to deny that our foreign policy has been muddied at best since President Obama took his first oath of office. It has been muddied such that – what Scott said, I believe to be the case. Our, our adversaries do not fear us, and our friends do not trust us. And and I think that the administration, unfortunately, has acted precipitously with respect to Iraq, with respect to Afghanistan, with respect to Iran. And I think it's gone into all kinds of bad places, and we're seeing some, and only some, of the consequences of those precipitate acts. I think that globally... Uh, President Obama, for whatever reason, has chosen to absent the United States from day in, day out sort of interactions of states. And I believe, and this is somewhat in agreement, I think, with what both of you have said, that in response to that, folks like China, folks like Putin have taken advantage 
and they see openings and they are they are claiming what they can. And I, I, I think that it's late in the Obama administration to come up with a foreign policy, to come up with a correlative strategy, let alone to come up with effective and, and uh, uh, affordable tactics. But when you're facing something like ISIS or ISIL or Daesh or whatever they're calling it now, um, I agree that it is an imminent threat to the security of the United States. And I believe that there are lone wolves out in out among us and and we ought to be doing everything we can right now to destroy as much of it as we possibly can gentlemen we are almost out of time uh and indulge me please if i ask the impossible of you uh within the next three or four minutes <clears throat> take the position of uh, a philosopher of history uh and looking backwards towards this time uh and explain to me and explain to yourself and to your colleagues, uh, what happened this year that uh, was inevitable and what was open to choice and uh, where were the right or the wrong choices made? This was the year that the American people decided that they were uncomfortable on a rudderless ship of state. I'm frustrated by the lack of participations but uh, to participation of Americans in the process, whether it be to participate in the argument or participate within the act of voting. Um, this constantly is, is a problem for me. I consider that we have actually three political parties in America. We have the Democrats, the Republicans, and the I Don't Vote Party. And the, and right not the now, know-nothings, but the do-nothings. And right. And, those, and the two political parties right now are doing everything they can to increase the size of the I Don't, I don't Vote Party. I think that uh, philosopher Milt that you described would say that this was a year, a, a, a significant marker of a departure, of, of, of a significant marker of a true end to a 20th century post-war liberalism and statism in which across the board at all levels people registered doubts about an ongoing government model that was dependent on ever higher taxes to fund ever uh, more generous public employee contracts. I think that that is that is probably the single biggest characteristic of what happened, and and that makes Scott Walker just got to throw this in. Scott Walker's reelection is the single most significant historic event of yesterday the i must ask quickly why because because the the left promised us not once not twice not three times not four times but more than five times that it would destroy scott walker and i mean people in my face were screaming their eyes were bulging their veins were pulsing and they said he will be dirt under our shoes we will stand on his neck until dead. And he is reelected. And and they all of those guys up in Wisconsin and ladies up in Wisconsin promised us that they were going to stand up for ever increasing government with ever more generous contracts. That was the that was the link that Walker Senate Bill number 10 broke. And it is a watershed. It 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 goes beyond the uh, 
tax revolt of 1978 that propelled Ronald Reagan into the White House? I turned to Scott Stantis to, uh, uh, to give us the final uh, judgment on everything we've been talking about so far. What have you learned tonight? Or what is well, urgently required to be said by you, which you've not yet been able to say? I, I think I've, I've said it all. I think we have learned that the American people want something to be done. They want the problems of the country to be addressed in a serious manner and in a forceful manner. There's a danger that someone will step forward with bad ideas forcefully said, and we'll, we'll, we'll put that person in the ascent. That's a danger, and we better watch out for that. And with Tiny Tim, we can all pray, God bless us, everyone. Amen. We may need it. <laughs> Amen. Thank you so much for an excellent conversation.